0: Well, let's start off with this. Um, every time I start a message, I want to explain why you need to stick around and hear this. So this is sort of like the hook. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you uh, some insight into the back end of sermon prep. So when I prep a sermon, what I do is I, I, I map out what the scripture says, where we're going, what we're going to unpack. And then I typically, this I learned this from from one of my pastors. He taught me how just to, to think about why people need to hear what you're teaching, and so I, I've mapped it out. I want you guys to know that God has made us, his people, uh, to be a priesthood. Priesthood is an essential part of our identity. And yet so many people, so many believers, don't understand the concept, don't understand what the priesthood is, don't understand what a priest. We think of priests as like a holy man in a church that I go confess my sins to um, because of culture. But when, when you actually understand the function and the, the idea of priesthood, the definition of what it means to be a priest— um, you, you'll know how to live more effectively. So it's, it's no wonder that many Christians are confused and disappointed and frustrated and don't know how to live the fullest life that God has for them. Um, because if you want to live a fulfilled, purpose-filled, abundant life in Christ, that's going to require you to understand who you are in Him. And part of that includes understanding what it means to be the priesthood or to be a kingdom of priests, as Peter says. So the, a huge part of your purpose is that you would be a kingdom of priests, that you would function as the priesthood collectively as the body of Christ. A huge part of your identity is that you and I are priests in Jesus Christ. A huge part of, you know, your reason for existing is that we exist to be a kingdom of priests, all right? So, I don't, I don't say that lightly, I don't say that just to get your attention for shock effect, I really mean it. Um, which means if you don't understand how to function as a kingdom of priests, if you don't know the purpose of the priesthood, um, then there's a large part of your new life that isn't functioning properly or that you're not operating in fully, all right? So, um, of course, people will be frustrated, you know, confused, unfulfilled, disappointed because they're missing out on a huge aspect of who they are and who they're made to be in Christ. And so as born-again Christians... When you think about the priesthood, we are made, um, I wrote it down like this, we as born-again children of God are made to offer gifts and sacrifices of worship to God as a kingdom of priests under the great high priest being Jesus. And so when you read the Old Testament, we're going to get there today, just as the Levites were chosen for priestly service, uh, they were chosen for closer proximity to God. They were closer for unique access to places and responsibilities um, you know they were chosen for priestly worship. In that same way, we're also called to function in, in, in that same kind of capacity. So, if you don't understand worship, if you don't understand your your role as the priesthood in the earth under the great high priest Jesus, um, you won't understand how to function in relationship with God or in relation to God, because we're made for worship. And so, the big question becomes: What is worship? What does it mean to worship? What does it mean to live as a kingdom of priests? All of those become the big questions for today's message. And I'm gonna unpack that as clearly as I can. Okay, but first, let me show you in scripture where it it teaches very clearly that believers in Christ Jesus are a priesthood or a kingdom of priests. Okay. It says this in First Peter chapter two, verse nine. I'm going to close the chat as much as I love reading what you guys are learning and what's standing out to you. I don't want to be distracted, so I'm closing it. It says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Okay, so as believers, here's how Peter's addressing, you know, believers, He calls us a chosen race. We talked about that in the last episode, what it means to be chosen. We are a royal priesthood. It's royalty. As part of our identity in Christ, we're going to reign with Him. We're going to, you know, steward over the new creation under Christ Jesus as we were made to originally in the garden. We're a royalty in Christ because we're born again children of God. We belong to His family. Part of that means you're a priesthood. So royalty and priesthood go together here. And we're a holy nation. These are just aspects of our identity. Um, But I just want to zone in here on what it means to be the priesthood. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. Let's start in verse 4. It says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, from him who was, and from him who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Christ Jesus, the faithful witness, watch Watch how he explains who Jesus is and who we are. The firstborn of the dead and the rulers of the kings on the earth. To him who loves us, okay, and has freed us. So there, there are a group of people who are loved and freed by Jesus, the firstborn from the dead. And we're freed from our sins by his blood. He has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever amen so you know even if you say he's writing to the seven churches in asia he's still addressing what it means to be a believer specifically the the audience is the believers in you know the seven churches in asia but all believers are set free by the blood of jesus all believers are loved by jesus who laid his life down for us and all believers are a kingdom of priests set apart to God um, the Father, and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen, okay? Revelation chapter five, one more verse, okay? I just want to show you in scripture that this is not uh, some unique concept. It, it just doesn't get talked about, and it's, it's I don't know, I don't know why. I, I couldn't tell you. Revelation five, verse nine, it says, they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll, and this is addressing um, the Lamb, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for for God, from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. And you've made them, what? A kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So there are three ideas that come together here. Being a kingdom, being priests, and reigning on the earth those are three fundamental core ideas to our identity in christ okay so clearly in scripture it teaches that believers are a kingdom of priests we're set apart to be the priesthood under the great high priest being jesus the question becomes what is the priesthood and and we could have done you know um, probably a month-long study on this, just tracing it all the way from the Old Testament to the New. I didn't want to do that in one episode because I didn't think that'd be fair. There's no way to pack all that information into one message. But what I am going to do is we're just going to look at Jesus, the great high priest, and we're going to look at what he did, and what how he functioned, the worship he offered the Father, the gifts and sacrifices he brought the Father, and then we're going to look at what it looks like for us as priests under him to function, okay? Okay. So, Jesus is the great high priest. He's the ultimate high priest. There's no one better than him. He's the the supreme high priest. There's no one better. But he offers, because he's the ultimate, greatest high priest, um, part of what that means is that he offers the ultimate sacrifice. Okay, so I'm going to take you to Hebrews, and we're going to look at these ideas, because Hebrews does a fantastic job. If you're looking for uh, one book of the Bible that talks a lot about how Jesus was the high priest and what he offered and what he did as a high priest, Hebrews is the go-to book for that. Um, So what you're going to see is Jesus offers, Jesus sacrifices, Jesus gives up himself as a sacrifice. The word offering, here's what it means. A sacrificial gift unto God. This is the Greek word used for offering that we're going to see, but also it's interchanged with sacrifice. Let Let me explain what I mean. The word for offering here is a sacrificial gift unto God. Something of value given up to God out of gratitude, something prescribed by God and offered on His terms. Meaning God, um, you know, defines what's being offered, how it's being offered, the terms of it being offered, and it's for His glory. And it often comes at a cost to the person giving it up. We see this in the Old Testament with people bringing animal sacrifices, giving up something of value, something they could have kept for themselves. You know, we see this with Abraham almost doing that with Isaac. We see this with, you know, Cain and Abel bringing a gift, an offering, all the way in the beginning of the, New- of the Old Testament. Um, so an offering is an act of worship, usually referred to as a sacrifice. That's why you'll see the two paired a sacrificial offering, or gifts and sacrifices, to be the same idea. We offer sacrifices... And we offer what's called offerings, but Jesus is going to show us what that means. Okay, so again, there's tape on my sock, and it's just going to bother me the whole time. Um, The reason we're going here is because part of your identity is that you're a priesthood, but you find that, uh, the meaning of that, and you find the function of that in Jesus. Since you are a priesthood in Christ, it makes sense to go, huh, the directions for how to live as a priesthood will be found by looking at Jesus. He gives us direction. He sets the tone. He he clarifies what that looks like. So Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to go through Hebrews for a little bit, and then we're going to jump to what it means for us to effectively function as priests, what that means, what worship looks like, how we offer gifts and sacrifices daily as part of our identity. Okay, so I'm just kind of letting you know where we're going. Hebrews 5, it says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men. Now, this is specifically the original intent for the high priest, okay? But, you know, beneath the high priest, there's only one high priest, you know, on the Day of Atonement. He would bring the necessary blood and offering and and ritualistic ceremonial, you know, cleansing, and he would go in one day of the year to deal with the unintentional sins, the ritual impurity of the nation of Israel. There's only one high priest, okay? Okay but there were a lot of priests underneath the high priest. And you had to be a Levite to be a priest. All priests had to be Levites, but not all Levites had to be priests. So if you wanted to be the high priest, you had to descend from Aaron because that's God's chosen line. And this is what he tells us in Exodus and Leviticus. So Hebrews 5 is just clarifying, look, a high priest is chosen from among men. Meaning, the reason there has to be a high priest is he's appointed by God to act on behalf of the rest of the people. So when the high priest would go and do his his service and and the ritual, you know, cleansings and the sacrifices, especially on the Day of Atonement, it was on behalf or for the rest of the nation of Israel. He represented them. That's why you had the ephod with the stones that represented the different tribes. It's as if he was going in bearing or dealing with, you know, what it is the people couldn't deal with on their own. And yet Jesus does that in a greater way, okay? So what we know about the high priest is he has a gift to offer, a sacrifice to offer, specifically for sins. But in the Old Testament, prior to Jesus, the high priest and the sacrifices with the Day of Atonement and the temple, that only dealt with unintentional sins, not high-handed, intentional, rebellious sins sins you know this is speaking to the unintentional sins of the people the ritual impurity i touched a dead animal i did this you know so what we see here is the high priest is you know the author is telling us what the high priest does well he's appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices to god because he's been appointed by god to represent the rest of the nation So the nation of Israel would go, we have one guy representing us going into the Holy of Holies, dealing with our ritual impurity, bringing a sacrifice, bringing the necessary blood to bring the cleansing, and that will deal with us for the year, and almost reset the nation spiritually, um, or ceremonially rather. So verse 2 says he can deal, and it's very important that you understand the high priest had to be um, another human being to actually represent other humans he had to be an israelite to represent other israelites so he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness now this is the typical high priest what you have is before jesus every single high priest had their own weakness had their own sinful nature had their own you know sins to atone for through the sacrifice and those were just unintentional he's beset with weakness jesus is not because of this he's obligated to offer sacrifice for what his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Okay, so we're just setting the tone because Hebrews 7, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10 is going to bring Jesus flying in um, on the clouds to do what no other high priest has. Hebrews seven twenty seven. This is speaking of Jesus. Back it up to verse 26. Now, again think about yourself in no way am i saying that we offer sacrifices or gifts that replace jesus's sacrifice or or add to his sacrifice or complete his sacrifice that's not what i'm saying so i'm going to say that explicitly up front i am not telling you that our gifts somehow add to or complete the work of jesus no he's his work is sufficient without our gifts and offerings all we're doing is we're offering sacrifices and gifts in response to his sacrifice, okay? And we're following in his footsteps. So, so far what it means to be uh, at least the high priest, and you're going to see part of your priesthood function in that is that you offer gifts and sacrifices. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, referring to Jesus. He was holy, he was innocent, he was unstained, and he was separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Now watch. He has no need like those high priests, like every other high priest that ever existed, to offer sacrifices daily. You know, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. So, here we have Jesus, the ultimate high priest, not offering a sacrifice for his sins, but actually offering a sacrifice for everyone else's sin, right? Right? And the sacrifice is not the blood of goats, the blood of bulls, animal blood, some kind of, you know, incense. It's his own life. And his sacrifice is not just a, well, this is going to deal with sin for a year and then, you know, Tony will take over when I die and he'll be the high priest. And this is Jesus saying, once for all, I've dealt with all sin. So Jesus is on another level as the high priest. But notice, this is what I really want to zone in on. That he is offering sacrifices. But he doesn't need to offer sacrifices daily, repetitively. He does it once for all. And the sacrifice or the offering is what? Himself. This is a very important idea for for the letter to the Hebrews. Okay. Hebrews 8, it says, Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Again, like Hebrews 5 said. Thus... Or consequently, in conclusion, it's necessary for this priest, referring to Jesus, to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Okay, so what we're going to see Jesus offer is not the gifts according to the law, but actually something transcendent. Not to put the sacrifice of Jesus at odds with the law, but what the law prescribed for the for the for the levitical priesthood is different than what Jesus offers cuz he comes from the line of Judah and and he's going to be, you know, appointed high priest on the basis of an indestructible life meaning because he offers his own life a perfect holy unstained blameless sacrifice pleasing to the father that becomes the basis for his priesthood him being resurrected and his offering is different it's not what the what the law prescribes necessarily, though it is the fulfillment of the entire Torah. Hebrews 9, 6, and 7. I'm just giving you a little context because when we get to us offering sacrifices and gifts as the priesthood and functioning as priests, like that's what God has made us to be. This is a fundamental uh, uh, element to our identity is that we are priests. And this will change the way you see worship. This will change the way you hopefully live each day. When you realize, oh, the same way the Levites were set apart to do service unto God and have unique proximity to God and have unique access to responsibilities and, and, and certain things, and that same unique setting apart God has given to me And he set us apart, so in the Levitical priesthood, we see a shadow of what what God ultimately desired for humanity, which is that we would be the spiritual priesthood in Christ Jesus, him being our head, and the offerings we give, like Jesus says in John chapter 4, aren't offered at a specific location or in a specific, you know, ritualistic fashion or animal blood, it's your life. Hebrews 9, 6, and 7, it says, These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So remember how I said the high priest would deal with not the intentional sin, but the unintentional sin. So notice the connection between offering, gift, sacrifices, and sin, unintentional sin. Now, the people, there are different offerings prescribed in the Torah. You have the burnt offering, you have the peace offering, you have the uh, uh, wave offering, you have the different kinds of offerings I can't think of right now because my mind is just not there right now. But they each represent um, a different way of, of, of... I'll say it like this: Some offerings function as like a, almost like a housewarming gift. Like God, you dwell among us. This is just us bringing. This is our way of coming close to you. This is our way of showing thanks. This is our our way of saying you're welcome here. Other times, it's it's um, uh, the peace offering. I can't think right now, man. For some reason, all that knowledge just fell out of my brain. So I'll have to come back to that if it comes back at all. So I'm going to put pause there. Um, but back to Hebrews nine. Hopefully I'll get back to the offering thing when I remember. Um, What we have here is the high priest going in once a year, but notice what he brings, blood for himself. Now Jesus being the high priest that is different, he doesn't bring blood for himself. He He brings blood, the blood of himself. In other words, he's not bringing something that will deal with his sin. He's bringing himself to deal with the sins of the people, his own blood. Okay, so there's there's an offering, there's intentionality, There's this is a form of worship. This is the Garden of Gethsemane scene where Jesus is, you know, sweating drops of blood profusely, you know, uh, in agony, just awaiting what's coming um, and saying, Father, Father, but he submits himself. This is what, this is, we're starting to paint a picture of worship. You and I live in a culture where worship is the song that really hits us in that moment or singing loud enough or singing with enough passion and just singing for some reason as a form of worship. That's not even the main kind. Hebrews nine twenty five through 26, it says, uh, referring to Jesus, that he didn't go in to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. Then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of who? Himself. So, what I'm trying to get you to understand is when you see Jesus laying down his life, you're supposed to see a high priest bringing a pleasing aroma, sacrificial offering that the Father uh, not just accepts, but goes, this is good enough to deal with the sins of humanity. This is Jesus that you think of about the priesthood doing service unto God on behalf of the Israelites. You think of the high priest going into the holy of holies once a year to deal with the unintentional sins of the people. That's that's how you're supposed to view the the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Is he's laying down. This is what John the Baptist says. There goes the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's referring to the sacrifice, the Lamb of God that we see in Passover, who is given right to deal with the sins of the people so that the death angel can pass over. So that death can pass over us and God actually secures us and protects us in his son because of his blood. So Jesus is offering what? His life. And you and I intuitively know this, but we, for some reason we never make the connection to our own life. If I'm gonna function like Christ and follow in his footsteps and live a life of gratitude in response with worship it's going to look the same. And I'm not laying down my life because Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. I'm not laying down my life to get into heaven. I'm not laying down my life to get enough. I'm laying down my life because that's my worship. That's the offering. That's the gift I get to bring. It's the only thing, really, that I can truly bring God is the life he's given me and what I do with it. That includes my body and my time and my resources and my relationships and and gifts and talents and everything, man. So I'm trying not to get ahead of myself, but Hebrews chapter uh, 10, starting in verse 5, okay? It says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Now, remember, Up to this point, it's been Jesus' high priest sacrifice is better than every high priest that comes before. He deals with the, the, the intentional sins of all sin. It's a once for all. It's his own life. It's good enough to deal with the sins of humanity. So we've seen this comparison already, that Jesus doesn't bring the blood of goats and bulls. He brings his own blood and life to atone for human sin. So when Jesus comes into the world, sacrifices and offerings... You've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. Okay? In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Now that throws people off because they think what that's saying ultimately is that God has no regards for the sacrificial system He instituted. Doesn't make any sense. Why would He? That's not necessarily what it's saying. What it's saying is that had its role, that had a place, that was fulfilled. What God ultimately desires is the perfect, holy, blameless life of His Son that can deal with humanity's sin. You can bring all the offerings in the world to God. Without the sacrifice of Jesus, it does you no good, because you can't make up for sin. No amount of animal blood can deal with the soul and cleanse you inwardly, which is why there's no pleasure in that. Ultimately, God doesn't go, you know what, that's good enough, that that pleases me enough, To deal with your sin. No one can bring something except Christ. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will. Now, this is important. This is important because what we have here is a contrast between what? The ultimate will of God, what he truly desires, and what is referred to as burnt offerings and sin offerings. The will here involves the body prepared for Jesus not the burnt sacrifices and offerings that, you know, the Israelites would bring. Okay, so let's keep reading. He says, I've come to do your will as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, look at what the author of Hebrews adds as commentary. Listen, when he said above, you've neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, right? Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. And here's what the author of Hebrews has to say about that. Look at He does away with the first, the sacrifices and burnt offerings and sin offerings. He does away with that in order to establish the second. Meaning the ultimate will of God for the son to lay down his life as the perfect offering for humanity, right? That perfect will doesn't add to the sacrifices and burnt offerings of the Torah it actually, according to the author of Hebrews, is established in place of it because the first is done away with. Whatever that does for your eschatology and end times and what it's going to look like in new creation for offerings and temple, you got to deal with that. This is what he says. He does away with the first. What does that mean? I don't know. Have fun though. So the point here is, Jesus doesn't bring what every other high priest has brought before him. And that's actually the exact reason why he's able to be the high priest is because he's fundamentally different. Okay, so let's go. Let's keep going. Hebrews 10, it says, by that will we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus. What, what, what's what been offered? The life, the body of Jesus once and for all. Notice the once-for-all language. It's very important for those that just, I don't know, whatever your theology makes or soteriology makes for, meaning that which has to do with salvation, however you make sense of that, and can people walk away from, reject, lose their salvation? I just want to ask you, did the body of Jesus deal with sin once and for all? And every high priest, or every priest, rather, stands daily at his service. So remember, for a priest, they're appointed to what? They're appointed to a unique service that is what? On behalf of the rest of the people, right? Because the nation of Israel is chosen from the rest of the nations. Even within Israel, there's a unique tribe. There's a, there's a special tribe chosen, set apart for a unique service. And even within that, that tribe, we have one man every year who's appointed to be the high priest. Okay, And so every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which by the way, could never take away sin. But we do have types and shadows within the sacrificial system of the ultimate Lamb of God who would take away sin once and for all. But when Christ had offered for all time, there's, there's again, a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down. So he's already distinguished from every other high priest in this way. He sits down because he's finished and his work doesn't continue in a repetitive, monotonous kind of way where I repeat the same sacrifices over and over. Yes, he continues as a high priest forevermore, but the work of high priests to bring an offering, to bring a sacrifice over and over daily to deal with the unintentional sins of the people, he doesn't have to do that. He's finished. His work is done because it was once for all, it was for all time meaning it was a good enough sacrifice to bring one time, and human evil all across time is is dealt with. So, he brings a single sacrifice for sins. He sits down at the right hand of God, noting authority and power, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So, look at the, the repetitive language of offering, giving up. By a single offering, He's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. Here's how the Spirit bears witness. We have Jeremiah 31, 33 prophetically declaring what Christ would do. This is the covenant I'll make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my law on their hearts and I'll write them on their minds. Think of the tablets of stone that Moses came down with after um, it was written on by the Lord himself with the laws for the people. Then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now watch, where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. So the ultimate once-for-all offering to deal with all human evil is perfectly and fully. In that offering you not only have your identity as a child of God, you not only have a clear picture of what it looks like to follow the Lord God, but you actually have your identity as the priesthood. So if you go, I don't know what it means to be a priest or, or, or what it looks like to function as the priesthood, look at Christ, who is the ultimate high priest, the head of this whole thing, leading the charge as the head, you know, um, Dictating what the body is supposed to be doing. Giving commands and orders to the rest of the parts of the body. Look at what he does. Look at what he does. He offers himself. Now by no means do we offer ourselves to deal with sin. By no means do we offer. But what I'm saying is in his sacrifice, we see a picture of how to live as a faithful child of God. It is an offering up of life. And a lot of people think, oh, that means dying. No, That actually just means being willing to die. But until I actually die, I'm choosing daily to die to myself, give up myself, mortify my sinful flesh and desires, right? Let me show you a couple things real quick. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. What's interesting is we jump to Hebrews 11, you get the Hall of Faith you have certain people who are foreshadowing the ultimate offering of Jesus with their own offerings. Not that their offering at all perfectly parallels to the offering of Christ, but you see a picture of it in what they do. So, you know, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, we have Abel. By faith, Abel offered, when you think offering, think worship. When you hear giving a gift or offering, just think worship. He's giving a sacrifice. It's something that costs him. It's something that God has prescribed. It's something that God desires and it pleases him, right? It glorifies him. It's on his terms. Because we think of worship as like bringing God whatever leftover I have and going, you'll take it. And God goes, actually, I've prescribed, I've already outlined the terms of what real worship is. And what you're doing, slapping my name on that, ain't worship. So, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gift. So, you're supposed to see in Abel the very first, I'm going to say this with confidence, the very first foreshadowing of the work of Jesus. This is what the author of Hebrews is doing he's showing you the ultimate work of Jesus as high priest bringing an offering to the Father, we see that in Abel. Why? Because Abel brings an offering, a sacrifice, that is more pleasing than Cain. We see Abel bring a sacrifice that God commends him for. He accepts his gifts. We see Abel as being commended as what? Righteous. So I think in Abel and Cain, that little story you're supposed to see Abel is foreshadowing Jesus, and then Cain is just a sum total representation of all humanity. And all of us, bring, let me try and bring a gift, let me try and bring my offering, let me try and atone for sin, let me try and be righteous on my own. And Abel's commended as righteous, his, his, his offering is accepted by God like Jesus except the difference between Jesus and Abel is that Jesus is supremely better. He's God in the flesh. He's preeminent. His sacrifice covers all human evil. Abel's does not. But Abel does speak, though he died, right? And so in that, we see Jesus' resurrection. You know, we go down a little more, you see a man named Abram. Father Abraham had many sons. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, what does he offer? He offered up Isaac. (laughs) Now, did he actually offer him up? He killed him? No. But it was an offering, nonetheless, because he was willing to do what the Father said. So, the offering here was not the completion of the act. The offering here was being willing to go through with what God commanded. I'm going to go through with it. Whoa, Abraham, hey, love the enthusiasm, buddy. You did it. I'm going to bless you. So Abraham is tested. He offers up Isaac by faith. So we see that any offering God accepts is what? By faith. What is it that Cain lacked? Which is part of the reason why his offering wasn't received. He lacked faith if you go up a little bit, um, where does it say that Enoch, uh, maybe it is Hebrews, or not Enoch, uh, Cain, where does it say that Cain didn't have faith, Cain is referenced somewhere else, I guess it is Hebrews 5, okay, either way. The surrounding context would imply that what Cain lacked was the faith that Abel had. Not just the kind of offering, but the kind of offering Cain brought seems to be a reflection of a lack of faith, whatever that means. I haven't explored that in depth. But the point here is to offer something that God is pleased with requires faith. In fact, I know I'm scrolling all over the place, but if you go up to verse 5, Do you know what it says? Without faith, it's not possible to please God. It's actually impossible. So if I'm going to imitate Christ, which is what we're called to do in Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to show you, then we're going to be like Abraham. We're going to be like Abel. We're going to be like the priests that have gone before us in the history of the nation Those who offered up gifts and sacrifices that were prescribed by God unto God's glory at a cost to the individual and actually um, ends up being by faith. So watch, Ephesians 5, and then we're going to wrap this all up. Ephesians 5 says, look, be imitators of God as beloved children. And what's interesting is Paul is going to shift in verse 2 and start talking about Jesus. And you think, when are you going to get back to telling us how to imitate God? And he's going, I just told you in verse 2. So watch. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And he's already talked about what that looks like. Be forgiving as God in Christ forgave you. But it doesn't stop there in verse 1, as if verse 2 starts a new train of thought. Verse 2 is a continuation of what it means to imitate God. Walk in love as Jesus Christ loved us, and he gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God, and then I'll go into verse three, sexual immorality and all impurity, that that should not be named among you saints, foolish talk, coarse joking, making fun of your mama, that's not, that's out of place it will go in and talk about all the stuff that shouldn't be a part of the believer's life. But I want to really focus in on Jesus offering a sacrifice to God. It's himself. But notice, it's because he loved, first of all, the Father. But what Paul notes here is that Jesus loved us. Jesus will say things like this. um, You know, the Son of Man came to lay down his life. No one takes my life. I give it up freely. It's because he loves the world. God loves the world that the son gives up his life. And it is an offering to God. It is a sacrifice to God. But that doesn't mean there's no love for the people involved. It's simultaneously, this is in obedience to the father. And this is because I love people. Because don't those two ideas go together? I know in friends, this can mean something else don't those two ideas go together like obedience to to God and love for people are always going to go together like you can't say I'm obeying God but I'm hating people no, the actual commandments outline what it means to love people and that's what it means to obey God right to follow the commandments is to not just obey God but to love people because in that we see the perfect you know outline of what love is so this is where we get to, thinking about all that Jesus has done, giving up his life, being the perfect sacrifice, uh, living the perfect life we never could, submitting to the Father in, in totality, you know, being holy and blameless and without blemish and resisting every form of temptation, and then laying down his life, letting the real criminals accuse him and putting him on the cross. That's insane. But he gave himself up, not just in obedience to the Father, Right? And guess what? The son is not like being forced or pressured. It says he willingly lays down his life of his own will. Meaning the father's not coercing or manipulating or forcing Jesus. Like, you better. And Jesus like, uh, Dad, I don't, I don't want to. You go get out of heaven. Go do it. That's not what's happening. The son goes, I am willing to do this. I want to. Because his will is in perfect alignment with the father. There, there's no distinction in the wills when it comes to the divinity of Christ and, you know, being in union with the Father. But in his humanity, we see the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus saying, not my will, but yours, not my will, but yours, not my will, but yours. So now we transition to what it means for us. And this is part of our identity. I know it's taken a while to get here, but all of that context is necessary for us to understand. That's what I'm trying to give you is understanding. I could give you all these practical actions and go, you know what? Let me give you 10 things you can do today to be a better man. I could do that. But what's helpful is understanding that reinforces long-term obedience. That's sustainable, right? Understanding is what sustains long-term obedience. So I'm trying to give you understanding of what it means to function as the priesthood. It involves imitating Jesus, walking in love, walking in faith, which involves obedience and submission and offering up our lives and being willing to die for what we know is true and what we know benefits another. It doesn't mean you will. It just means I'm willing, like Abraham. Did Abraham actually have to kill Isaac? That was never the intention, but that was a test. So, in Romans chapter 15, I'm just going to show you a couple of things. This is what Paul says in Romans fifteen fifteen. This is this when I read this I went oh my gosh how have I never seen this? This is how Paul views his ministry. And I'm just wondering is this unique for the apostles or is this how like all believers should see how they serve God? I'm betting since we are all priests and we're a kingdom of priests, not just a kingdom of children but a kingdom of priests, then we're going to do and think the way Paul did about his ministry. Just, that's just my suspicion. It says, on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God. What, what did God give you the grace to do, Paul? Well, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Paul views his ministry, his apostolic service and ministry in the gospel, as priestly service. I want you to think about that. Part of the way Paul viewed what he was doing and how he was doing it was that it was as if Paul was a priest dressed for action, doing service unto God on behalf of other people, representing them as best as he can, but specifically an ambassador of Jesus, to the rest of humanity. It's as if Paul says, what I'm doing to preach the gospel, going into cities, planting churches, appointing elders, taking persecution, he sees that as priestly service. So, anything that we do, as it relates to doing our calling, or fulfilling our purpose, and, you know, preaching the gospel, living the gospel, knowing the gospel, anything that relates to the kingdom of God and His gospel... We sh- I think there's precedence for us to view that as priestly service. Does this text explicitly tell us to do that? No, but I'm just reading in between the lines. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So if, when it comes to the priestly service of Paul, it's as if he views his service unto God as a as a priest would, would view what they're doing in the temple or the you know the tabernacle what they're dealing with the the menorah or the table of showbread or the animal sacrifices or the blood or the altar. He does view himself as bringing an offering, something he's offering to the Father. Is it in replacement of Jesus? Is it in addition to Jesus? Is it because Christ's sacrifice is not sufficient? No, no, no. Heck no. The offering here are the Gentiles. And he says, Look, God graced me to be a minister of Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel so that the offering of the Gentiles would be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In other words, It's as if Paul is saying, I'm trying to do my best to uh, preach the gospel, disciple, um, faithfully serve other people in such a way that their lives would be a a, a pleasing offering to God. And it's as if that I'm partly involved in that, sharing in that. It's as if, Paul is going, Lord, I'm doing my best to offer to you believers who know you and are, and are, are sanctified by the Holy Spirit and understand the gospel. I'm discipling, I'm, I'm taking the reproach, I'm dealing with persecution, I'm sacrificing, I'm preaching, I'm doing all that, I'm teaching, I'm serving, I'm, I'm, I'm tent making, man, I'm laying down everything I can so that these Gentiles you've called me to will be an acceptable offering to you on my behalf. It's as if Paul's going, I'm serving as best as I can, so that the result of my action and service is faithful and worship and acceptable. Second Timothy four six. this is also how Paul viewed his own life. He said, look, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. If you understand the drink offering in the Levitical law, when it comes to the sacrificial uh, system and what you would bring on top of the grain offerings and such. Essentially, that was part of the deal. That was just part of an, another way of offering. Now, the drink offering, you could go deep into that and what what it represents and what it progressively becomes and how they thought about that. But the point here is Paul's going, look, my life is being poured out as if it's being poured out on an altar before God. and And this is all I can give him is this life, pour it out. And he's willing to be poured out. Being poured out is not always fun. It's not always enjoyable. It's not always comfortable or convenient. But Paul's saying, it's happening. My life is a drink offering being poured out by God unto his glory on the altar, and it's acceptable to him. Philippians 4.18, you know, he'll talk about what the Philippians brought him. Paul was brought a financial gift by the believers in Philippi. And he goes, I receive, I receive full payment and more. I am well supplied. I think some of us would really like to say that. (laughs) I would love to say I'm well supplied, but I'm not. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. A fragrant offering and a sacrifice. Huh. But notice what it is that is a true sacrifice. There's qualifiers. It's acceptable and it's pleasing to God. If you're saying, I'm bringing God an offering and sacrifice, but it's not acceptable and it's not pleasing to Him, it's not a sacrifice. It's At least it's not a sacrifice or an offering God wants. And I know this frustrates people because we just want to live on our high horse self-righteously thinking everything I'm doing God is pleased with. If it's not acceptable and it's not pleasing to Him, your sacrifices and offerings are in vain. What are you doing, you know? And there are people who, uh, I'm just trying to think of the best example I can. Um, Okay. There are millionaire believers who think that God just wants them to give 10% of their money and then they can live like devils the rest of the week and the rest of their lives. But hey, they're giving and offering and sacrifice, right? And that might come at a cost to them, but let me reframe sacrifice for you. A sacrifice we've been trained to think that a sacrifice is simply something that costs you something no that's just one part of what a godly sacrifice is is it costs you it costs you time it costs you energy it costs you labor it costs you whatever it is your reputation money whatever it is it's gonna cost you but just because something costs you something and you're saying this is for god doesn't make it a sacrifice It has to be acceptable and pleasing to him. Now, what the Philippians do is they send a gift. They're not interested in their influence and reputation and numbers and people knowing about them. All they want is going, I want to help Paul. That's all they're thinking. We want to help Paul. His ministry is valuable. He's preaching the gospel. We want to help. So we're going to do something for him that's going to cost us, but it's unto his glory. That element of unto God's glory is lacking in a lot of what Christians call sacrifice, mm-hmm. we go, this cost me, and it's going to help someone, but your heart in the process is not unto the glory of God. You're bitter. You're complaining. <laughs> you're, you're bothered. You're annoyed. You're accusing people. Oh, if they just get their crap together, I wouldn't have to give them money every single week. And, and the heart that you have when you give a sacrifice ain't pleasing to God. So this is why Jesus, in Hebrews, is offering something that is acceptable, it's pleasing, it's from a place of obedience and submission and love. We have to learn as the church to not just go, something that cost me is a sacrifice. No, that's just part of it. A sacrifice is going to be acceptable, pleasing from a a good heart, from a place of love, and I want God to be glorified. That's a sacrifice. So, let me take you to Hebrews 12. Remember, Hebrews is all about, hey, look at Jesus offering himself. Look at Jesus offering his life. Wow. But Hebrews will go on to say, you as the reader, you as the listener, you now have a a responsibility to respond to his sacrifice with your own. And we'll get to that in a minute. In the meantime, quick commercial. If you've not already done this, go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have a bunch of free resources that are made available to anyone around the world, completely free and accessible to anyone who wants to learn how to read the Bible. We have free online Bible study courses that will teach you how to read the Bible. We have free study devotionals that walk you through specific patterns and keywords in the book of Ephesians. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have Bible study workshops. We have all this free content because of generous supporters like you guys. And if you want to support this ministry, we're teaching people. How to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves, and there are a bunch of ways to donate. You can go to aboveapproachministry dot com slash donate. You can give through debit or credit card. You can send a check to P.O. Box three three eight uh, Green Cove Springs. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon, and then you can also get some church merch. If you've not already grabbed some church merch, I would recommend you do that so you can represent Jesus on your body. And all the proceeds go right back into this content so that we can reach more people and equip people to, you know, live and teach the Bible themselves. And if you didn't know this, I actually have a book. I've published a book. It's called Fruitful. And the point of this book is to be a resource to the church to teach people um, the essential keys for the most abundant Christian life this side of heaven. And so in this book, what I do is I, I outline the gospel absolutely clear. Clearly, So you can actually know what the foundational truth is. And then from there, we discover what our purpose is, what our process is, and what our position is now in Christ. So if you are a new believer, or if you're a believer that really wants to understand what I believe are the essential key truths that a lot of people don't understand in the church— I would grab a copy. And if you haven't already joined our online church, get in that online church. We have a lot of cool stuff happening, events every single day pretty much. Uh, we're in there praying and fellowshipping and gathering and growing together as a community. And the last thing is this. If you haven't already checked out our podcast, uh, we have podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and everywhere else where you can get a podcast. And pretty much all the content on YouTube, the live streams, what we do is we... Um, Make that into podcast format so you guys can just listen on the go. So go check that out if you have not already. And let's get back to the video. Okay, let me get back to the millionaire illustration. Where I was going with that, and I'm thinking about it now, was there are millionaire believers okay, that think their main and only sacrifice to God is to just write checks to organizations and churches. And they they think that that's the sacrifice God is interested in, okay? And it's almost like that excuses me to have a bitter heart as I give or a complaining heart as I give. And they're not as concerned about their heart and what they're thinking about the people they're giving to. They're just concerned with writing the check, sending it off. And was that a sacrifice? Partially. It costs you money for sure. Did it honor God? Was your heart in that? Was your love and compassion and and desire to see people benefiting and and having their needs met, was that a part of your giving? But if you think that's, because God's not interested in your money, he's interested in your heart, and that's the, the, the big problem that we can really struggle with, is we think God is just interested in my mindless activity where my heart is detached, but I'm doing what he said. And, you know, I'm not going to say that your wrong heart negates the act entirely, but it just makes me think, was that really something that honors him just because you went through the motions and did it? It's like sitting in Sunday, whatever church you go to, whatever day you guys meet, it's like I'm going, I'm showing up, I'm planting my butt in the pew, I'm listening, I'm singing the songs, I took notes, and then I leave, and we check that off, like, God, I did it. There's my sacrifice for Sunday. There's my sacrifice for Saturday. And your heart the whole time was not in anything that you were calling a worship or sacrifice. Hebrews 12, 28. It says, therefore, since we have a kingdom that can't be shaken, let us be grateful. You know what I've been working on lately? Trying to be grateful. Grateful. Waking up grateful, going to sleep grateful, ending each you know uh, activity of my day as best as I can with gratefulness. That will do a lot for your life. I promise you. That's a that's a that's hard. If I'm be honest. It's hard. It's not natural for me to be grateful. I have more reason to be grateful than I have to complain. But for some reason, complaining just comes so natural. Finding what's wrong with my life just comes so easy, you know. But nonetheless, it says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. And thus notice the connection between gratitude. Let's offer to God acceptable worship. Is there a sacrifice and worship that God is not accepting or pleased with? Absolutely. In fact, I had a bunch of scriptures I was going to go through. I'm not going to go through it. I'm actually going to save this for another series because I think it's going to need to be its own standalone series. But if you guys want the homework, here are the texts, meaning here are the passages of scripture. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10 through 17. Haggai chapter 2, that's right, Haggai, I didn't just stutter, Haggai chapter 2 verse 13 through 14, Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 31, Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 20, Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 21 through 23, and Malachi 1, 6 through 14. All of those passages, and I mean all of them, make it very clear that God is not pleased with any old sacrifice or worship. Notice, look at the qualifying words. Let's offer to God acceptable worship. It's from a place of gratitude. It's with reverence and awe for our God was a con- is a consuming fire. Meaning, he burns up the offerings on the altar, doesn't he? He's the fire that consumes and receives and accepts like we see with Abel. Or Abraham, or Noah, or whoever else brought an animal sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 13 is another verse that talks about us offering gifts or worship. If I could break your categories for a minute, worship is more than, I'm not saying it's not, but it's more than your song. It includes the song. It includes the fruit of your lips. It includes singing his praises. But if you just define worship like that, you've given yourself license to live however you want as long as you sing the words on Sunday. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 15. It says through, thank you, James, for that gift, through Jesus, let's continue, continually offer up sacrifices of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So is acknowledging God and his holiness and his character with our lips, is that praise and worship? Absolutely. But should I, um, what's the best way to say this? Should I add praise and singing to a life of darkness and evil? That doesn't seem like it goes together. Just like James will say, not you, James, but James, the brother of Jesus, in his letter, he'll say, look, should, should um, cursing and blessing flow out of the same mouth? Right? That doesn't make sense. That's not fitting. So if you think of sacrifice and gifts as just praise, you're missing out on the main way God defines worship, which as we're going to see is with our life. And that does include the song. And I'm not at all trying to minimize the song, but what Christian culture has done is it said, hey, worship is primarily the song. So as long as you sing loud enough and passionately enough and cry hard enough in service or while you're driving, that, that, that excuses the life of sin you're living. You can have, in other words, it's like, As long as you sing the right words at the right time to God with the right passion, you can live however you want. It's like, bro, no. It's how you live. It's how you treat people. You choosing not to blow up on your son or daughter when you have every right to lose your temper, that's worship. Because what you're saying is, my God says to control my temper, to be compassionate and merciful and understanding. You're submitting your ways to his word. That's what pleases him. Now connect that lifestyle to praise and worship with your mouth. But if you just emphasize one over the other, you're living a life of imbalanced worship. It's incomplete. Worship is with the life I would say just as much as with the lips, if not more. First Peter chapter two, verse four through five. It says, As you come to him a living stone, and we've, we've looked at this, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. This is Jesus. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, so think the temple, to be a holy priesthood, think the Levites. To offer spiritual sacrifices, think animal sacrifices, right? Just, I'm showing you the way the Levitical system was set up to foreshadow what Christ gives to us, right? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. So what are the sacrifices God wants from us? Does he want your money? Does he want you to give up video games? Does he want you to stop watching Netflix for nine hours a day and open the Word? Does he want you to sing loud when you know you're you're timid and afraid that someone might hear, but you'll sing His praise nonetheless? And who cares who listens? Th- those can be ways that worship flows through your life for sure. Those can be forms of worship. But if you focus just on the material, just on the 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 physical dimension of using my stuff t- as a sacrifice to God, it, you, you miss out on the core essence of worship, which is it's primarily spiritual. Now, I'm not trying to disconnect the spiritual realm entirely from our physical world. They overlap, don't they? So technically, anything I put my hands to can carry a spiritual element to it. Technically the way that I engage music, or what I choose to watch at night when no one's around, what I choose to let my mind meditate on, how I choose to use my body and my mouth to interact with people around me, there are spiritual elements to that. So when God says, look, I'm looking for people, I want people, a a, a holy priesthood, to not bring animal sacrifices, to not bring animal blood, to not bring just these physical things. You lay on the altar and you plant your butt on a, uh, in the pew on Sunday service and then you go out and you live like hell the rest of the week. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for people who will live like my children and give me the spiritual sacrifices I'm worthy of. And that includes how you use your body. That includes how you talk to your mom. That includes how you choose to speak to those who you're passing in traffic and they just flipped you off. That includes what you do with your money. That includes what you meditate on and watch. And what you do with your eyes and what you do with your mind. That includes all those things. But I'm trying to get you to understand, as a priesthood, there is technically everything i put my hands to and everything i engage in this real this material world it can have a spiritual element to it should i just like paul says eat and drink to the glory of god do all things to the glory of god and you go not all things you can't sin well obviously paul's not talking about sin he's talking about i mean everything i can i can choose to walk down my street right with, with gratefulness in my heart, that's a spiritual sacrifice to God. Why? What are you sacrificing? Well, I'm laying down all those reasons my flesh tells me that I have to complain. And I'm choosing to not, I'm laying down myself. I'm denying me. I'm denying my fleshly tendencies. So the spiritual sacrifices God's looking for is connected to his holy priesthood. You and I, here's another way to say it, you and I, part of our identity is that we are now capable of bringing spiritual sacrifices that God actually approves of and is pleased with, not to replace or add to or complete the work of Jesus. We're not saying that. We're saying, well, now that you're in Christ, you have this unique God-given ability to bring him spiritual gifts that honor him. Romans chapter six or seven will say, Um, it is impossible to please God for those who are in the flesh. Meaning if you're outside of Christ, you don't have the spiritual capability to truly honor and please God and do things unto His glory. So, you know, whatever you can think of, I mean, you name an activity, you name a part of your day, you name anything you're going to do or, you know, um, accomplished today. You can include God in that and turn that space and that environment into a place of worship because we are now the temple of the living God. And part of your identity is that you don't need to, like like Jesus says in John chapter 4, what does he tell the woman at the well? He says, look, um, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. The hour is coming when true worshipers, the holy priesthood, a kingdom of priests, children of God, will worship the Father in what? In spirit and truth. So the Father is seeking such people, not just anyone, a certain kind of people, to worship Him. So what does it mean to be the priesthood? to be priests under the ultimate high priest, Jesus. It means you worship God in spirit. You worship God truthfully, according to his word, according to who he really is, in alignment with his commands and his character and his word. And you are set apart as a people to effectively do that. Meaning this kind of worship we bring God, which is spiritual, By the Spirit of God inside of us, now that we're spiritually alive, we can offer Him these gifts and sacrifices. That is not possible for the average person dead in sin. Because they are fundamentally, (coughs) they're dead in sin, they're enemies of God, they're in hostility, they're separated. They're not in a spiritual condition of being able to offer gifts and sacrifices to God. So this is why I say like, this is such a unique aspect of our identity that we are now collectively the temple of God, which means, guess what? Worship doesn't happen in a specific place at a specific time prescribed by God. It's wherever I go and the Spirit of God leads me and what He's doing in me, that can be worship unto the Father. You now have the ability, as I'm going to say it like this, since we're filled with the Spirit, That makes you mobile temples of God. Are you not a house for His Spirit? Are you not mobile and you go places? Okay, you're a mobile temple. Everywhere you go can be turned into, because the Spirit of God dwells within you, it can be turned into sacred space and worship can take place. At the gym, like Mark, he lives at the gym. At Walgreens, when you're walking down the street with Grandma... And grandma always talks about when she was 12 years old and that dog bit her and you're kind of tired of here. You can turn that space into worship as you offer God spiritual sacrifices. Maybe it's how you treat people. Maybe it's what you think about people and, and, and your flesh is trying to get you to, to be jealous and compare and you choose to sacrifice that, lay it aside, reject yourself and say, I'm going to choose to do what God says is good. Right? So we are now mobile temples. That's it. Do you know how much... This doesn't... This should not give you an ego. But now, this is technically the language that we should use. Do you know how sacred you are now? Not you, because you're awesome, but the way God has chosen to treat you and set you apart and fill you with the Spirit and make you a mobile temple so that now, just like the priest would bring offerings and sacrifices, you can do that anywhere. Do you know how sacred that is? It is sacred. That that unique responsibility, I'll tell you right now, the priests in the Old Testament and before Jesus, they didn't even have the ability we have. Do you know why? Because they would have to go to the temple or they'd have to go to the t- tabernacle on a specific day in a specific prescribed way and there is sacredness and reverence to our worship as the priesthood. I'm not at all diminishing the reverence and the, and the awe and the approaching God in, in holiness. We should do that. So this doesn't mean I'm a mobile temple. Everything I do, I just kind of flippantly worship God. There's a prescribed way to, to worship Him. It's in truth, meaning it's aligned with His character, His word, His ways. It's in spirit. It's the spirit of God leading me. <coughs> right? And it's what is acceptable and pleasing to God. Mainly, how I'm choosing to function and and think in that situation. And what I do with my body. So there's a kind of worship. And guess what? God is spirit. So if you want to worship God, you have to worship in spirit and truth. You and I are set apart from the rest of the world in this specific way. That we can worship God rightly and they cannot that we are the mobile temples of God, of housing his presence wherever we go. And I can turn any environment, any circumstance, any space into sacred, you know, territory where God reigns. I can do that. Anytime I choose, by offering myself up, laying down my life, rejecting myself, dying to myself, denying self, and saying, I will submit to your ways and honor you in worship and love. I can do that anytime, anywhere, in any circumstance and God invades that place because someone who is under his reign submitted to his ways and brought the ways of his kingdom into that situation in space. <coughs> Romans chapter six will tell us, um, it says, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Sin, exists in my body, but it doesn't control my body. You get that? So, it might exist in this mortal body, but me, what I do with my body, is my choice. I don't want to get into some weird conversation. You know what I mean? I choose to do with these hands and these legs what I do, right? Because my brain controls it. So, don't present your members to sin. I'm trying to reframe what you define as worship. This is worship. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Meaning what you do with your hands, where you go, what you choose to look at, what you choose to say, every every facet of what you choose to grab and latch onto and how you interact with people. Those all become issues of what am I going to do with my body? So my body becomes a tool, a resource. Really, we should think of it as something I can sacrifice and offer up to God and say, use me in my entirety how you want. Use my mouth, use my eyes, guard my eyes, use my hands to bring life and serve and benefit, use my feet to go to the right places, use my mouth to have the right conversations and praise you when I want to complain. Use every part of me. That is worship. You as a priest, me as a priest, we as a kingdom of priests can do that anytime, anywhere. This brings a a, a sacredness and a seriousness to everything you do in your life. You think vegging out on your your bed from 10 p.m. till 2 a.m. on TikTok has no implications on your life and it's neutral and it's not, well, it doesn't dishonor God if I'm not watching bad things. Everything you are doing with your body in your life can have an element of worship or actually be anti-worship should you choose to dishonor God or I'll tell you what there's so many things we say, oh, well, that's just neutral, right? And there are a lot of things that do fit under that category. It's neutral, right? Money's neutral. Um, you know, someone disagree, but alcohol's neutral, in my opinion, what you do with it. I, there, but there's a lot of things we're going, hey, that's neutral, that it's actually not. You're choosing not to function as the priesthood, as the mobile temple you're supposed to and offer sacrifices to God. And you're choosing to actually zone out and your mind's just being turned into mush as you scroll mindlessly for two hours. That right there can be a form of anti-worship because you're pushing against the grains of what God wants to do in you. What he wants you thinking about. Romans 12.1. You guys were all wondering when I'd go to this. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, watch what he says. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What did he say in Romans 6? Present your members to righteousness. Holy. Again, he here's what a good sacrifice, a sacrifice God actually accepts. Not a Cain sacrifice, not a cane offering but an able offering, right? <clears throat> Here's what he says. As a living sacrifice. And that, that's, for, right there, that's a conundrum, right? You're like, mm, sacrifices die though, right? Sacrifices are laid down on the altar and they don't breathe anymore. They're actually burnt up in fire. Remember what Hebrews said, our God is a consuming fire, offer up praise, all that stuff, okay? All that stuff. This is where the idea of living yet dying comes into play. I'm choosing to die to myself and deny my flesh. That is a sacrifice, but I'm living to do it. Right? And look at what Paul says, man. This is your spiritual worship. Holy and acceptable, pleasing to God. Spiritual worship. You have to be alive to offer something, right? But also something has to die for it to be a sacrifice. So, if you want to talk about worship, every time you choose to deny yourself and submit to the ways of God, that's worship. Every time you don't, that is anti-worship, and it doesn't matter how much you sing on Sunday and how much money you give to the church to make up for that. It's still not worship to disobey God. It's anti-worship. We need to think of worship again. Psalm fifty will talk about you know act, offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving, right? Uh, Proverbs twenty-one verse three. <clears throat> Actually, let me let me take you to Proverbs twenty-one three. So I don't think I need to explain in scripture, you know, sometimes when you sing to God and praise him, that's worship. We know that. What I'm trying to get you to understand is it's more than that. It's more than that. It's, we've so compartmentalized worship where it's like, yeah, but I'm living my life, but I sang my song this morning when I was on a run and I and I was really praising God and then I turned around and I treated grandma like trash, but at least I sang the song. It's like, you think, singing loud enough and passionately enough, excuses treating people terribly? Which one do you think God is more concerned with? Let's see, right? To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. So guess what? He's not saying that animal sacrifices don't matter when, you know, at the time of this being written. What he's saying is, you know, if God had to choose between a nation doing justice and righteousness or a nation bringing animal sacrifices on time they're just always there bingo bango bungo if that's if that's what God is choosing between he would choose righteousness and justice and God does say this over and over to the nation of Israel I wish you guys would shut the temple shut down the sacrifices you guys are treating me like trash treating other people like trash and you're thinking uh, as long as we continue to bring the animal sacrifices and blood on time God is pleased with us you're choosing the lesser portion. That's what we do. We don't function like the priesthood. We function like we're the choir. And, and we're more concerned about being the choir than we are about being the priests. Psalm 141. Look at what David will say sacrifice or worship is. He says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. And the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. This is submission. This is seeking the will of the Father. This is worship. When you lift hands, right, you're saying glory to you. You are the ultimate sustainer and sovereign king. Prayer is counted as incense. I think David's on track. Whoever wrote Psalm 140. Yeah, David. David. He's on track. He understands that the Lord regards prayer. And I, I'm choosing to give up time. I'm choosing to not that it's like, God, you got time. Ten minutes, you're welcome. <laughs> can't believe I gave you ten minutes. You're lucky you got nine, you know. We treat God like that. When actually this, this concept of prayer being um, almost like an evening sacrifice or compared to an evening sacrifice is, is more like, again, there was a reverence and there was an honor. To bring the Levitical priesthood. So if you were a Levite and you were appointed to be a priest and have service and represent the rest of the nation, that was an honor. Though it became a burden historically to the nation, and they thought, this is a burden, we can win. It's an honor. There's reverence. And that same worship, giving up our time to pray and seek God, there should be reverence in that too. Okay? Matthew chapter 9 verse 13 Jesus himself says this Go and learn what this means I desire mercy not sacrifice I came not to call the righteous but sinners In Matthew chapter 12 verse 7 <clears throat> close your eyes you'll get you'll throw up everywhere if you watch the screen If you had known what this means In chapter 12, he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. What does God regard as worship most? Well, you aligning with his character and functioning in his character, and his ways. Right? And what's interesting here is he says something greater than the temple is here. And connected to that idea is the sacrifice God is actually looking for. Mercy. Mercy. He's looking for righteousness and justice. Hosea chapter 6 verse 6. This is just, this is who you are made to be. You, I, I, if I hadn't said it already, you are recreated spiritually in Christ to be able to do this. Now you are made for worship, literally. You are created in Christ, spiritually made alive, to bring these offerings and gifts every day to God in worship, and it involves how you live. This will bring a sacredness to everything you put your hands to, everything you do. How you handle the normal chores of every day, how you handle homework, how you handle you know, marriage and your children and raising a godly family and how you handle these responsibilities becomes sacred worship. And going, Lord, this is a gift unto you, how I operate here. Hosea 6.6, it says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. How many times does God have to say it? Uh, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings So you know what real worship is going to look like for us as the priesthood? It's going to look like loving God, loving people, and it's going to look like knowing Him progressively. And then the love that I have for God and for people is the result of knowing Him. Last verse of the day. Marcus says, above reproach ministry, time to address the filthy rags things. I don't know what that means. Clarify, Marcus. You know I need clarification from you. Okay, Proverbs 15.8, this is the last verse, and then I might touch on what Marcus said. It says, the sacrifice of the wicked. I can't even read it. (laughs) Think about this the sacrifice of the wicked it's an abomination to the lord the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him this goes back to the whole faith and righteousness and being positioned spiritually to effectively offer gifts to God that please Him. Remember how I said the wicked, who lack faith, who are in rebellion, who are anti-God. It doesn't matter what sacrifices they think they're bringing to Him. He doesn't. He actually goes, "That's an abomination." That's if you're outside of Christ, and you'd think. I'm going to do all the church sacrifices that I see the believers doing. I'm going to give to the poor in this organization. I'm going to give my time to go and help the, the homeless ministry. What you think you're bringing to God as a sacrifice because you are wicked, meaning outside of Christ, separated from Him, dead in sin, a rebel, sin is staining your soul. Because of that, God regards what you think is a pleasing sacrifice as what Marcus already referred to as filthy rags, even more than that, Marcus, it's an abomination. So when we talk about worship, God is looking for a certain kind of people to worship Him in a certain way, and um, that's pleasing, that's acceptable, that's holy, that's spiritual worship, that's uh, consistent with the truth. But that's only available to those who have been recreated in Christ through faith to be the priesthood. So when you go, who am I? You are made for worship. Just like Adam and Eve in the very beginning, humanity is made for worship. That might be the original intent, but it's not possible without Jesus. I can't effectively worship God in a way where he's honored and pleased and it glorifies him in its spiritual worship. I can't give him what he desires. If I'm outside of Jesus, I need to be made righteous, I need to be made holy, and the sacrifices I bring as a result of that have to be made in faith and in love. This is the worship God is looking for, and that's why he's made you who you are, so that you would use your talents, your gifts, your resources, your relationships, your influence, everything that you have, your body, your talent, everything, And that all of that you would begin to see now as a way to worship God. So now the the money you have in your bank, the money you have in your drawers, what you have available at your disposal, your home, your car, all all the material stuff, now can have a spiritual element to those things. When you dedicate them to God in a spiritual way, consistent with the truth, out of love and gratitude, and for the benefit of another. This is what God is looking for. And the problem is, no human being after the fall could give him what he's looking for. So this is why Jesus comes. This is why Jesus comes to be the ultimate high priest to give the ultimate sacrifice, so that now, in Christ, I can give offerings and gifts to God that He regards. Because I am in Christ, I am righteous, and we are a kingdom of priests spiritually alive to give Him what He wants, which is just spiritual worship. God is not looking for you to sing to Him all day. That'll be part of it. But it goes far beyond that. We are, by nature worshipers. That's your priesthood of worshipers. The, Le- the Levites, the-, the Levitical priests in the temple, what they were doing with the menorah and the table of showbread and the altars and the incense, that was worship. That was coming near to God. That was being set apart from the rest of the nation to do unique things that they were given access to. Now, in a greater way, in a spiritual way, we get to do that same thing now that we're in Christ as a kingdom of priests. So if you're wondering who you are, what's my purpose, what am I called to do? You're called to worship with your life. You're called to function in worship as the priesthood and as the, yes, mobile temples of God. Not to island you and isolate you from the rest of the church. It is what it is. You are filled with the Spirit. You're both the living stones, part of the temple, and you are actually going out and being the temple. So it's as if there's yet one temple, yet many, many temples within that. Which you'd say is a body, but many members. I'm fine with saying that. Alright? So, as we end, you're purpose for existing, your reason for being made alive in Jesus, is to function now as a kingdom of priests, where every day you look at what's at your disposal, your time, your energy, your resources, your gifts, and you go, how can I spiritually offer this to God, use it for His glory, love and benefit people, worship Him in spirit and truth, and give Him, from a place of gratitude, what He's worthy of, right? I want you guys to go think about that and what it's going to look like for your life. Because that's what it means to be worshipers. Not everyone can do this. That's why God makes us new. So that we can actually effectively give Him spiritual worship. In closing, if you didn't already know this, this is an online ministry, abovereproachministry.com. We have a completely free 40-day Bible study program. It's self-paced. You're going to go really deep into learning how to read the Bible and study scripture. We also have a 27 day and an 11 day program. We have free Bible study worksheets, other online courses you can take to learn how to read the Bible. Uh, We have free Bible study devotionals. We have an online church, it's wonderful. There's a lot of stuff we have, so just click the link in in the description and go to AboveReproachMinistry.com to find everything we have available to you. And it's all completely free because of generous supporters like you guys. So if you want to give to this ministry, you can go to AboveReproachMinistry.com slash donate, and then there are many ways to give through um, debit card, credit, debit credit card, Cash App, PayPal, Venmo, Patreon. If you become a patron, this is new, okay, but if you become a patron... You get access to Bible workout programs I've developed over time that I've released. They're more like printout kind of things, or you can do them electronically, but they're almost like study guide. I call them Bible workout programs because you're effectively developing and training specific Bible study skills, whether it's recognizing keywords or patterns. Okay, so I have four different Bible study programs, workout programs. Um, which you can actually get for like two ninety nine, three ninety nine on our Teespring store, okay. And so, if you become a patron, you get access to those depending on you know what tier you sign up with. So I thought I those are perks for being a patron. Since now all my sermon notes are just available for free online um, as part of just the ministry. All right, so I think that's it. Uh, on Discord is where our online church is. It's linked in the description below. Just click the link, um, or you know. Someone can link it in the chat. And in about 20 minutes, we're going to jump on a call together. So come and join us. Yes, I'll be there today. I promise. Because I haven't been there in a minute. And I'm failing. All right. I'll see you guys there. Thanks for watching. And keep moving towards Jesus faithfully as the kingdom of priests that you are. All right. Bye, guys. Thank you, James, for sharing that.